0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No,
1: I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell!
2: Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. Today, we are going to be spoiling T6, the sixth installment in the Terminator franchise, also known as Terminator Dark Fate, directed by Tim Miller, produced by James Cameron.
0: Yeah, he was one of the producers and also uh, is credited as like one of the four or so screenwriters who helped come up with the story.
2: Right. So he's back with the franchise for the first time in a while. We'll talk about the history of the Terminator franchise, which goes back now more than 30 years But first, let me introduce my two co-spoilers. You just heard Forrest Whitman, Slate's culture editor in New York. Hey, Hey, Forrest. And from Philadelphia, we have Sam Adams, Slate's culture writer, film critic, Terminator expert, I hope. (gasps) Hi, Sam. That's me. Hello. But I actually need him to save me because (laughs) you guys are going to see as we try to reconstruct this movie that it's one of those movies that just it leaps out of your mind the second that you've seen it. So the idea of going back plot beat for plot beat and reconstructing this is going to be a journey into some sort of fantasy Terminator world that exists everywhere and nowhere, as this movie does in a way. It's bringing back all these Terminator callbacks, but what is it in and of itself? It's sort of this protein blob, not unlike the black blobby substance of Mm -hmm. one of the villains, which we will get to. But before we start on this movie, I wanted to, as usual, ask both of you, whether or not you generally like and would recommend this movie. And also because it's part of such a long tradition, can you just revisit your own Terminator histories? How many of the six now movies that exist have you seen? Roughly in what order? You know, sort of how far back and how deep does your um, love for and knowledge of the franchise go? Forrest, I'll start with you.
0: Sure. Um, I would give this movie a thumbs up just as Arnold Schwarzenegger does as he descends into the, <laughs> into molten, the molten metal steel. <laughs> at the end of Terminator 2. Um, and as that tone of voice maybe suggests, I, I there is a version of my life where my entire career path up to now was determined by one event that happened, you know, uh, not quite 30 years ago, which is that when I was roughly five years old, I think, I believe in the basement of our new house where we had just moved, we watched on VHS, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And it became my favorite movie for a time. So I had two older brothers, and it became sort of part of my identity. I think that I was somebody who kind of knew the cool shit in terms of movies and music because I had older brothers. And that led to me becoming more of a nerd in terms of movies and music and eventually books and so on. And then it became my job to be the person who is trying to know about movies and music and have good taste in them and so on.
2: Wow, so you were formed by T2, which you saw before the first one?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think, you know, the original Terminator was on TV a lot, although it's, of course, not quite the same on TV. But it was only later in my 20s that I went back and rewatched the original Terminator and it was very hazy so I mean I Terminator 2 was probably the bigger movie for me as a kid and I think a lot of um, millennials think of Terminator 2 as the best Terminator movie which is uh, heresy to uh, people of older generations I think and in fact like David Foster Wallace has this whole essay about how Terminator 2 is the worst sequel ever made and <laughs> As a child, I did not believe that. This movie, it doesn't work as much more than a nostalgia delivery system, but I think as a nostalgia delivery system, it worked very well for me. I mean, it knew where to push my my buttons.
2: I just can't, I'm just i so interested to hear how this movie brought you any pleasure other than like the uh, saddest retread of ancient memories of, of cinematic pleasure. <laughs> Sam, what about you? Uh,
1: well, I saw Terminator 2 on my first date. Uh, shout out to Gwen Sesnack. Um, oh, wow. And uh, that is also my review of Terminator <laughs> Dark Fate. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I have my history with, I was older than five when I saw T2 uh, for the first time, but I think my, my arc with regard to it is pretty much the same. I might have watched the first one on VHS before the second one came out. I don't remember, but that was definitely it was, it was a huge event to see that that movie in in nineteen ninety one. It had like the you know these amazing like ILM morph effects that everybody was like so jazzed for this liquid metal stuff. Um, you know James Cameron was just kind of at you know at the kind of peak of his powers at that point, point. and this is a movie that kind of really deliberately continues in that lineage and explicitly throws out all the other sequels, uh, that came between them, all of which I have seen, um, none of which I think are any good. Um, so that is, I, th- I think a good, a good move. And this is not, uh, there's no reinventing or re CGIing of the wheel here, but it is uh, like the Terminator, a machine that is built to do a thing. And it does that thing quite well.
0: Yeah, in fact, like the, the villain of this movie, I think, is kind of a microcosm for the entire movie in that he is literally just the chrome skeleton of the T-800 from the original Terminator with the sort of liquid metal substance of the T-1000 Terminator from Terminator 2. Just turned just black. over <laughs> each other, turned black, which of course makes it completely different. Um, there are some other small changes that I think we'll get into, but it, it mostly just tries to take part one and part two and then mash them together, your favorite parts from both, and... There you go, Terminator, Deck Fate.
2: Well, I guess in order to set up my negative response to this movie, I should give my own Terminator history. In my review of this, I compare myself to the Lyndall <laughs> yeah. Hamilton character Sarah Connor in that I, too, am a grizzled veteran who's been around since the early first Terminator days. And I remember the sensation that the first Terminator made, which is a very different one than Terminator 2, which was a huge right. cultural event at the time. It was the movie of the summer for sure, that summer, right? I think and- it was
0: the most expensive movie ever made at that
2: point. That sounds Cameron-like, right? And that it used that as a marketing tool, probably. And, you know, just the way it looked, the special effects. It was, it was the hot movie of the time. I can see why, Sam, it would be your date movie. You know, it was a thing you could have conversations about because it also had this sort of political allegory, right? It was the, the period of Rodney King and the L.A. riots and just a moment that seeing a cop, seeing a villain who could go in between sort of liquid, metal, evil person from the future and L.A. cop... You know, it was a very sort of telling image to have on screen. It was the conversation piece movie. And how I would place the first Terminator in that lineage, and I can see why, although I haven't read that David Foster Wallace essay, I can imagine (laughs) the kind of argument he would probably make is that there's something really crafty and artisanal about the first Terminator, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in its way... It probably had a pretty high budget but it was not uh, It was not a
0: huge budget. Yeah, I knew it was nothing like Terminator. It was 2, a
2: yeah. medium budget science fiction movie that became a blockbuster despite itself. It was really kind of a sleeper on the market, right? And I think what made it a big hit besides the presence of Arnold Schwarzenegger who was this, you know, at the time not a kind of familiar, affectionate, jokey figure, but this weird new kind of figure on the scene, right, who was mainly known as a weightlifter and and bodybuilder and who suddenly had become this, like, monster from the future. So because of him, but also, I think, because of the premise. Like, it was a real piece of science Mm -hmm. fiction in a way that... Really none of the movies have quite been since. Maybe T two shared that to some degree, but T Two is more of an action movie, right? Sure. Whereas the first Terminator really asks these questions, almost looper style questions, about time travel and the circularity of it and how does it work? And this crazy idea that, you know, the the guy who goes back to save the savior of the future ends up being the father of that savior of the future, right? So there's this kind of Ouroboro structure. So it was also a conversation piece movie, but in a completely different way, not sort of like, have you seen the cool new special effects movie, but more like what world is this coming from? Right. And it it really just sort of helped to invent a new genre. I mean, robots from the future are something that we're now used to seeing in all kinds of movies and, uh, And so I guess I remember it as being innovative in that way. Like James Cameron, I never regarded anything that came in between as mattering at all after T2 was very relieved that this movie was absolving us as viewers of the responsibility of caring about the Claire Danes installment, you know, the, the Christian Bale installment or anything that had happened in the interim because they didn't have Linda Hamilton. I mean, the big draw here is really that Sarah Connor is back. It's not the first time Arnold has come back, but it is the first time that the two of them have come back together. Um, All of that said, I'm going to need you guys to engage in some sort of forensic reconstruction of the story of this movie because I really do just remember it as a long, loud, noisy blur. And the only note I was saying as I opened my notes from the screening is something about how there's an opening car chase through a fruit market, which just struck me as the biggest cliché possible. And I never really thought the movie recovered from that level of uh, familiarity. But where do we begin this movie? How do we fit this into the time loop of the previous Terminators?
1: The first thing that happens chronologically, I'm not sure it's the first thing in in the film, but when they made a, a sequel to James Cameron's Aliens, um, Alien 3, people were really outraged. It felt like it was a big slap in the face that the first thing they did in Alien 3 was kill off Newt, um, the kind of child character that James Cameron had introduced in, in Aliens. Um, so, of course, this Terminator sequel, which is officially approved by James Cameron, begins by killing off The boy character from T2, John Connor, um, who apparently was saved at the end of that movie for like a couple of years um, and then another Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator tracked him down and killed him. Um, So that kind of sets us up with uh, the return of Sarah Connor, but not the return of John Connor in this movie.
2: Which kind of puts the lie to the entire circular framework of time travel that's been set up by the whole thing, right? Because without any John Connor, how was there a rise of resistance against Skynet?
0: Well, this is something this movie explains. So, I mean, these movies have not lost their interest in time paradoxes, but what they've started doing is just like recreating new time loops over and over and over. And and yes, I mean, this movie completely undoes... You know all of the importance of you know everything that happened in the first two Terminators, basically, and what it creates is that instead of the Skynet dystopian future happening, we have this different dystopian future in which there's another company called Legion.
2: Yeah. All they did is all... rebrand <laughs> it. Tronk. Yes, it's Tronk Company.
0: <laughs> I mean, as as uh, to get a flavor of the dialogue uh, of this movie, as Sarah Connor puts it in the opening narration, she says, "Once I saved three billion lives, but I couldn't save my son. A machine." Took him from me and i am terminated (laughs) and like this movie just has uh no fear of being very blunt and silly in its dialogue and grasping at every possible pun and callback it can make and there are like two in there also sarah connor is just constantly bragging about how she once saved three billion lives which is one of the more delightful aspects of this movie to me but yeah john connor is dead and everybody hated ed furlong and uh now people who hated him, including that David Foster Wallace essay, Dana, is basically just like, oh, it was pandering to kids. That's why it sucked. I mean, that was one of the main points. And so uh, he would have enjoyed seeing that. And now we go to Mexico City 22 years later.
2: Quick question, though. The moment where you see Edward Furlong get killed by a Terminator at the beginning, sort of like the cold open before we get to the real beginning 22 years later, is that cobbled together from old footage? Is it digital de-aging? How did they get that scene?
0: It is um, neither, as I understand it. And I wondered this, too. I mean, it's quite convincing. Even the fact that you're asking is is a compliment to the visual effects team. And my understanding is that what they did is they use Ed Furlong as a reference for this person, but kind of just constructed in the same manner as Gemini Man, the new um, Ang Lee movie did. They sort of constructed a new young Ed Furlong the same way that movie constructed a young Will Smith. And just had somebody kind of be his body double and pasted the face on, and uh, it really works.
2: But Linda Hamilton must be digitally de-aged, right?
0: Yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't get quite that far because the de-aging there is not quite as dramatic.
2: And you only I see them in a longish shot, I think, right? A fairly yeah. distant shot. It's not like you're getting repeated close-ups of their faces, a la The Irishman. Right.
0: Yeah, it's really effective. I had thought it must be like a deleted scene or something, but.
2: So the movie presupposes that that happened back just very shortly after the events of T2, Mm -hmm. apparently, when Edward Furlong is still a young teenager. And then we fast forward to 22 years later in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. We haven't met the new Linda Hamilton yet, because first we have to get to know this new character, the new Terminatrix, who gets sent back. Or I guess you wouldn't call her that. She's the Terminator killer who gets sent back, played by Mackenzie Davis.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, And she is Grace, uh, one of the many Christian illusions in the Terminator franchise just like you know giving the messiah figure the initials jc and calling the second movie terminator judgment day again not terribly subtle um and she is as you started to allude to dana uh quote augmented so she is kind of like a wolverine type figure where she is a human who has had a metal skeleton and various other features pumped uh inside her
2: and she has some visible seams right a little bit frankenstein style
0: yeah, which I thought it was like it's like you kind of slowly uh, catch sight of these seams, and then you're at first you're kind of trying to figure out are they scars or are they more like the seams on a product, um, and they're like a little bit of both. And then we meet our other uh, the the bad uh, robot, the the Terminator.
1: Yes, uh, so our new Terminator in this movie, uh, the latest model, is called a Rev Nine, um, and as you mentioned, Forrest, it is basically just kind of a very vaguely souped up version of the the T-1000 from Terminator 2 it's it's kind of black liquid metal instead of uh, silver liquid metal he has the ability to kind of split in half and have, leave his kind of skeletal frame behind like driving a truck while he you know runs off and does other things. Instead of turning one arm into like a uh, sword that he can stick through people, he can turn like several things into swords and stick them through people. Um, but it's really just a very kind of. <laughs> and he can it also- like a 1.1 upgrade, not a 2.0 upgrade.
2: Yeah, really, it's it's really not worth taking in your old model to the store and trading in for the new new one. But he can also, and I, I believe t too could do this, he can also take on the guys of people that he's killed, right?
0: Yes, and take on their voices. One thing that he could do that I wanted to talk to you guys about, because I... You guys probably are not going to be very interested in this, but five-year-old me was very interested in this, (laughs) which is that if I remember correctly, very early in this movie, he turns his hand not into a sword, but into a gun, which is the thing that I always wondered, like, why doesn't T-1000 do that um, in the original movie? And this one does briefly in his first appearance and then I think he never does it again which I mean granted he often is able to find plenty of guns around just because there are a lot in Mexico and the city and in America Um, but he only does that once right and I don't know I mean it kind of raises questions about what the limits of his ability (laughs) are like he can create moving parts and like fire parts of himself off in other directions but uh, it's not fully explored. So
1: his goal and his goal in this movie uh, the the John Connor of Uh, Terminator Dark Fate is a woman named uh, Dani Ramos, played by Natalia Reyes. And um, she is, uh, you know, just a kind of ordinary, like, uh, auto plant assembly line worker in uh, Mexico City, doesn't have any idea why she is uh, being targeted by this thing. And Mackenzie Davis, uh, Grace, does not have time to tell her, instead of come with me uh, if you want to live, she tells her she has about 30 seconds to get out of there, she's going to be dead. Um, which is another one of the things of this movie. It's like, what if we just said the same line like slightly differently? Um, And that kind of sets up the first big uh, chase scene.
2: Also, don't forget, and this is going to go to one of my larger overweening points that this movie doesn't create any character well, but- Donnie, the character played by Natalia Reyes, loses her entire family within the first 15 minutes of the movie, right? I mean, we think that it's going to be a story of this Mexican family where the brother and sister work together in an auto plant, right? They have this loving dad at home, but both the dad and the, the brother are dispatched, really, with extreme force in the very early part of the movie. And there's not really any downtime to mourn for Danny. She's just, like, swept up as bait in this whole trap for the Terminator, within the first 15 minutes of the movie. And honestly, for me, if the movie's going to try to claim the feminist cred that it wants to claim by, as it later will show us, making her not the mother of a future resistance fighter, which is what Linda Hamilton assumes she's going to be, but the actual savior of humanity herself, if it's going to claim those laurels for its head, I just feel like there should be a little bit of time knowing who this character is and why she's motivated, you know, why she's going to be this great leader who's going to be motivated to save the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, this movie has a very sort of uh, thin feminism. Whereas, I so I think the way that the movie probably thinks about that, like the the screenwriters and the director, who I guess we haven't said is Tim Miller, the guy who made Deadpool, who is uh, pretty good at directing action, but uh, I think not a particularly intellectual filmmaker, at least in judging by what's on on screen or a particularly distinctive one. Anyway, I suspect that the way that the filmmakers were thinking about it is that, oh, we're presenting you, um, for example, with this very hunky brother who you might typically think of as the action hero in this kind of story. And again, as you said, it kind of gets at this more explicitly later, but then they kill him off pretty quickly. So I think that's the positive spin that they might put on what they were just saying, though it does show a a little bit of a disregard (laughs) for life. Although, I mean, this movie also, it does have disregard for tons of life. I mean, it kills like dozens of uh, CBP officers later in the movie, for And that
2: opening car chase in Mexico City alone, the one that Linda Hamilton comes in at the very end of, just has massive collateral damage being wreaked, right? You have to imagine just cars flying off of highway embankments everywhere you look.
0: Can I ask one question about the Rev 9 character? Is that a Beatles reference? I believe it must be a reference to the (laughs) beloved Beatles track, Revolution 9. (laughs) I don't think there's anything more to read into it, but I feel it must be noted. (laughs) Sure, why not? Let's say yes.
2: In the sense that, like the song, his character makes no sense. Sure. (laughs) So let's get to the point where we finally get Sarah Connor into the action. It's really after that first big chase, after Danny's entire family has been assassinated And uh, she's met up with this futuristic being who descends nude in a blue bubble and then proceeds to steal someone's clothes and take her on the road. Um, It's not until that chase is winding up, essentially, right, that we see Linda Hamilton emerge.
0: Yeah, basically, you know, in a very dire moment, of course, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor shows up. So she emerges from, I think it's the same Toyota Land Cruiser that she was driving at the end of Terminator 2. Again, Terminators (laughs) 3 through 5 do not exist.
2: Now a vintage vehicle.
0: Yes. Uh, She just fires off a series of weapons. I I really love this introduction, I have to say. So first she takes out a Gatling gun and fires it at the new Rev-9 baddie. Then she takes out a rocket launcher and fires at him. And then she takes out a grenade and throws that at him, and then, uh, you know, sort of drops the grenade in a dropping the mic type fashion, says, I'll be back, and then literally turns away and doesn't look at the explosion. And it's really dumb and cliched, but the movie seems to kind of know it, and I was having a great time in that moment.
2: Doesn't she say, I won't be back? Isn't it something that, isn't a conditional, I'll be back, where she says, if you don't come with me, I won't be back? That's, that was how I remembered it, Sam. Do you, is, isn't it the case that somebody delivers that line in the negative at some point in the movie? That's
1: later in the film. There it's might there might be a riff on it later, but that time she does it, But she does it in a very, like, she's like, I'll be back. Right. Tossed you off. You know, it's just like a very, like, tossed off kind of spin on it.
2: So there's an interesting portion of the movie that follows this where up until they meet up with Arnold, which takes a little while. I mean, it's probably Mm -hmm. 20 minutes later or so into the movie that they finally meet up with the original Terminator himself. But there's a period where this becomes kind of an all-female road movie, where the three women are trying to get across the border into Laredo with no documents for Danny, um, a slight nod at kind of political reality that isn't really very resonant or, or carried through on in any way. Yeah. Um, and how is it that they make it past the border, actually? I don't remember.
0: Well, so they, I mean, they end up getting arrested. So yeah, I mean, bas- we, we get to know our characters for a little while. So we get to know how Sarah Connor is this character who has been fighting off Terminators something like every two years for the last... You know, two decades, twenty-two years—very vague. Which...
2: I want to know more about that because she has she has this line, which I admit is a great line about all I do is hunt terminators and drink until I pass out. I drink, right? yeah.
0: I hunt terminators and then I drink until I black out.
2: That's the an entire story of her life that we're given, which. I love, as her cover story, the very first thing we learned about her, but we never, ever hear anything about what those 22 years held in terms of how many Terminators did she hunt? Who were they coming back for? How did she live in between? And we never also see her drink till she passes out. I wanted there to be a kind of a party scene where we got to see (laughs) that side of Sarah Connor.
0: Yeah, I would watch that. I mean, what what it raised for me is just the question of, so if, if Terminators have been showing up on a regular basis for the last... Uh, 22 years then like do people know about this are the authorities aware and I think the movie gestures in a sort of hand waving fashion at, at certain uh, possible solutions like we eventually learn she's connected to some sort of government agent I think who's maybe helping to cover it up I don't know uh, but it, it raises a number of questions that are not explored very much but I mean in the movie's defense it also is quite efficient at like constantly moving you through to the next action sequence
1: Right. I mean, I think the idea is like we learn at one point that she is kind of, you know, an international fugitive. She's on like the FBI's most wanted list in the U.S. So she has been um, getting these sort of string of mysterious texts um, with GPS coordinates and a time and that the words for John. And every time she goes there and shows up at that place in time, there's a Terminator that she has to kill. And at some point, you know, setting off rocket launchers and throwing grenades over bridges has gotten her in trouble with the law. In the US and I, you know, and she has attempted at some point to like tell the truth to the people who arrested her, um, none of whom believe her and I'll think she's crazy. But I think her story is at least kind of circulating maybe as a kind of, you know, urban legend, or can you believe what this crazy woman keeps saying so but people have at least heard it, they just don't believe her.
0: So yeah, I mean, they start to make their way across the border, and then meanwhile, uh, Rev-9, the villain, the Bad Terminator, kind of co-opted all of the uh, capabilities of the American border control, so he's using drones and satellites and all these different technologies uh, to find them, which, again, I, I agree with you, Dana. It doesn't have anything particular to say about the border patrol, but it is sort of interesting that it shows the the somewhat menacing power, or some I guess somebody on the other side of the aisle might view it as the quite impressive power of the Border Patrol. And then it ends up with them getting arrested and put in the cages that we've been seeing in the news, basically.
2: Right. So that you could say that that's the end of this first portion of the movie where the three female characters are established. They go on the road together and they eventually manage to bust out of the border prison during the havoc of the um, Rev 9's attempt to to come and get them out. Then they find their way to the door of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his new guy, his, as we shall learn, his new um, identity he's been living under for all of these, these 22 years. And I guess this is, this is the next, you know, big moment for fans of the franchise to feel the warm recognition of this character who's become beloved, even though he was initially horribly menacing, and uh, and now occupies this strange place in between. Because, right, in T2, he really mm-hmm. became the loyal sidekick. And as you said, Forrest, the last we see of him is his self-sacrifice and his noble thumb <laughs> going into the molten steel. Um, but now, in the 22 years that have passed in between, Linda Hamilton has come to hate the Terminator.
0: Because because he killed her son. Right. <laughs> Pretty good reason. <laughs>
2: Right, but we have to assume that he had been reprogrammed at that point. Like, how did he no, go from? Uh-uh.
0: they they kept sending back more and more terminators, and one of the terminators got him
2: in the form of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, 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 right. But so then this is a different being than the being that killed her son. No, like this is a different no it's iteration the same one.
0: <laughs> It's not the one from Terminator, two, but it is right also a T-800, it's the same model. It's just that a couple years later they sent back uh, another T-800 and then in a movie that I guess we'll never really get to see, they have this other battle and then it leads to the scene where uh, we see at the beginning where the T-800 kills John Connor. So right after he killed John Connor, he runs off, he meets this uh, Mexican woman named Alicia uh, and they develop a relationship and he takes on this name uh, that is Carl. Great undercover name for a (laughs) T-800. And uh, although he notes that it is not a physical relationship, um, but he is a very good father. And basically we just get a bunch of very deadpan Arnold Schwarzenegger during the sequence where... Sarah Connor is understandably uh, unhappy to be spending time with the uh, killer robot that killed her son, but the killer robot who killed her son has become this nice man who does things like help with the groceries, um, and he notes that part of how the relationship works is, quote, I changed diapers efficiently and without (laughs) complaints, and I'm extremely funny.
2: He is extremely funny, I have to say, that most of the humor in this not particularly... Well-written movie comes from Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: I mean, it's like the writing of the movie is very dumb, but it's kind of dumb funny.
2: I do like the moment when Sarah Connor observes of the the Carl identity he's taken on. Do, do they not notice that you never eat or sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how or, he or explained. that you weigh 400
1: pounds. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean. Forrest, you mentioned, you know, Tim Miller, the director of this movie, not being maybe particularly smart or certainly being, you know, interested in subtext. And I feel like this is one of the places where that really shows up. I mean, these movies have, you know, in their own sort of, you know, James Cameron B movie way. I mean, they have some sort of abiding interest in, you know, the dividing line between uh, human and robot and what, you know, what differentiates one from the other. And the idea here is that this one T-800 Carl, Um, Killed John Connor, and then after that, he had no further commands after that. So he was just kind of left to wander around on his own devices. He apparently grew both a conscience and an appreciation for drapes, uh, because that is the trade that Carl has been in all this time. And that is a weird, not a particularly plausible idea, but that is... An idea, at least, that if you leave a robot kind of just walking around, it, you know, there's nothing left to kill, that it will sort of eventually become more human. It's like the movie that just tells us that, just to kind of cover over a plot hole, and then never goes back to it or shows any interest in that. And it's that's like a big idea that you can't really just kind of drop and forget well, about. But
0: yes, I mostly agree with that. Although I will say it, it definitely helps that the this franchise has already shown us in. Terminator 2, which as far as this movie is concerned is like the the last Terminator movie you saw, it showed us in Terminator 2 exactly how a robot can uh, kind of develop a a conscience and learn to be human and learn how to uh, attempt to make jokes and speak Spanish and all the things that Carl ends up doing. Like in many ways, this character of Carl is the logical progression of the character arc of the T-800 from Terminator 2.
2: Yeah, and interestingly, you could say that it's the reverse. I mean, Sarah Connor... Has become a machine in a way, right? right? I mean, she's lost some portion of her humanity and is now just completely focused on killing terminators. Whereas Carl has has gained in humanity, but she's fallen diapers. But the but the fact that we lack any flashback or storytelling or anything to give us a sense of what those twenty two years meant for either Carl or for Sarah to me points to just another of the weaknesses of this movie, which is that it's not really great science fiction. You know, I mean, it is in the genre of science fiction, but it doesn't evince a lot of curiosity about time travel about things like the relationship between the the machine and the human, you know, this idea that there's been this kind of crisscrossing where the robot became more human and the person became more machine-like. That's interesting science fiction material, but, you know, I guess this is part of the general sort of, duh, screenplay, <laughs> is that it just it is not particularly curious about digging into those paradoxes.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a progression that already started to happen with Terminator 2, which moved it from being, like, There's always a mix of action film and science fiction film in this franchise, and there was somewhat more science fiction, I think, with the first Terminator, and then the second movie was somewhat more action, and this one, it's even more action and even less science fiction, basically.
2: The first one also, I have to say, T1 just had a real interest in human psychology, you know, in the changing relationship between Sarah Connor and the guy who comes back and ends up becoming the father of John Connor, Kyle, is that the character's name? Kyle Reese. Yeah, Kyle Reese. There's an actual relationship that develops between them, and you have this sense that, you know, a person who had this freakish intervention in their day where a future naked guy in a bubble came down, you know, somehow goes from being just a terrified bystander, which is all really done he ever gets to be in this movie, to being an an actor in their own fate. There is no fate but what you make, Forrest. Another callback that comes along in this movie, which was originally in T2?
0: I believe it started in the first one. And then it's what Sarah Connor carves into, I think it's like a picnic table towards the end of Terminator 2 before they go and save the future or attempt to temporarily.
2: So returning to T6 again, what is the next place that we want to take these guys after they get on the road with Carl?
0: Well, so basically, they they have to kill the Rev Nine, right? And so they come up with this elaborate plan that involves using um, Danny as bait to attract the Rev Nine towards them. So they're on their way to getting um, the one weapon that they think can defeat this seemingly unkillable robot, which is an electromagnetic pulse, an EMP. Which, you know, they're picking up from some uh, kind of shadowy military contact, contact, which I think is another aspect of the movie It's not fully explained and they just kind of want you to fill it in. Um, But it's there that they get attacked and that leads to the next big action sequence and essentially just nothing but action for the rest of the movie.
2: The only part of the, that action that stands out to me, maybe because it reminded me in some ways of the, uh, the zero-gravity space fights in, in Ad Astra and other movies that take place in space, but there's that moment that they're flying in a some sort of giant military cargo mm-hmm. jet, right? And then there's a whole battle that takes place as they're being—it's not zero-gravity, but as they're being hurled from one end of the other of this of this unbelted, uncontrolled space—
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's effectively zero gra- gravity, where the the plane starts nosediving, and then that is often how they create zero gravity for movies, right? Is they they're go in free
2: fall, plane. yeah, right. exactly. And that is a pretty ingeniously staged sequence, I have to say.
1: And that sequence is really like where I started the movie start kind of started to leave me because the first. Um, chase scene when the rev nine goes after danny in the factory in mexico city and that's like a sort of classic like highway chase and that is very um i think probably deliberately reminiscent of kind of the big you know la culvert chase in in totally, t2 yeah. and it feels like a lot of it's done with you know kind of fast and the furious style with real cars and practical effects and stuff like this um the cargo plane fight is just kind of like unwatchable like cg glop like it just you can't tell like who's falling where or like what's going on it's just like a big loud mess and it's um really shows you kind of where you know modern kind of action direction falls short because i have just found that like i'm supposed to be excited in this and instead i'm just like How much longer is this going to go on? Well, the whole
2: movie to me was, was kind of indistinguishable CGI glop. So maybe the fact that that sequence at least stands out to me because of its location and the gravity conditions kind of shows how low the bar was set for the action sequences in this movie.
0: Yeah, I think it's a sequence that was sort of better in theory than in practice. Like it was kind of cool to think about how all of the physics were working, but they were not quite clear enough. To follow, and I think that's a little bit true of the sequence that follows as well, which is they end up boarding a Humvee, driving out of the plane, which is also very Fast and Furious esque, just like Fast Seven when they drive their cars out of the plane. Um, And they deploy the parachute that's on top of the Humvee, but like the parachute isn't quite working well enough, so they end up crashing into. I mean, is it the Hoover Dam or is it just (laughs) a dam? I
2: don't know. It's a huge ass dam. A
0: very big dam. And then they end up underwater. I mean, this sequence was kind of cool and imaginative because I don't think I've ever seen a Humvee drive on the bottom of a river before. (laughs) Um, And I don't know whether a Humvee can do that. Maybe we should do some live in-studio Googling. Or Uh, whether a
2: parachute would ever support a Humvee. I mean, what material is that parachute made out of? Yeah,
0: I would not be surprised if that is a real thing that the military does, is like airdrop Humvees into places. But I don't know. It'd have to be a very strong parachute. Shoot.
1: Yeah, they, I mean, they can airdrop tanks and right. stuff like that. Yeah, they wow. can definitely do
2: that. Sam, can you remember how they get to the inside of the dam with the, the Rev-9?
1: Yeah, well, ju- yeah, just to kind of run back this whole thing, like, they are flying away in the cargo plane. The Rev-9 steals another plane and crashes it into them and then jumps from his plane onto their plane. They fight over the Humvee. Um, <laughs> the Humvee uh, plummets out and then I believe he also then crashes what's left of the plane into this dam, um, they go underwater, they get out of water, they get going kind to of, go back up to the dam and that's where he tracks them down. So they have this big standoff in, I guess, kind of the generator portion of the dam. The the only really relevant thing there is that there's a big wheel thing that's spinning around really fast <laughs> that Arnold can like shove his, the Rev-9's face up against and you can watch it kind of get ground <laughs> away by that. But they decide, uh, they've been looking for a kill box um, to lure this thing into and they decide that this is going to be their kill box.
0: Right, and there's a, a sort of character moment there where we have learned uh, via a flash forward that Danny is the new John Connor in the future that she's the new leader of the resistance as they call it uh, and this is the moment when she decides to take command and say no we're going to make our final stand right now this is our kill box
1: that's one of the sort of like ooh it's feminist moments that this movie like really wants credit for and then I don't I really doubt anybody watching the movie does not see this coming but um, you know, Sarah Connor assumes that Danny, like her, is being preserved because she needs to give birth to the male leader of the resistance. But it turns out that, uh, in fact, Danny is the commander of the resistance, and not some theoretical child that she might have at some right, point. Right? Which
2: again would be a more believable and more moving plot point if we had seen her kind of emerge into leadership over the course of the movie. Uh,
0: I think it's. I mean, it's something that the movie does try to do by degrees over the course of the movie, and this is the moment where she does emerge as a leader. I just think it's it's true that it's like a little Uh, ham-handed it's not it's not subtle it's just like yes I'm taking command now
2: after having been I mean after having been an extremely passive and literally bait right there's a debate over whether or not to dangle her as a piece of bait so that given the fact that that's her character history I just I'm not convinced but that's a choice that she makes
0: they're like oh we're not going to use her as bait and then her one way and she moves by degree closer to being a leader is she says it makes total sense to use me as bait because I'm the least good fighter here and she kind of volunteers herself which is a moment of leadership in a way.
2: Right. Since we know that this franchise values self-sacrifice above all, right? I mean, that's that's sort of is, a, I guess, a highly valued moral position to take in the Terminator world. In fact, not one, but two characters end up sacrificing themselves at the end of this movie. Should we get to those big moments?
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I think it's even before they leave to do this mission that Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, Carl, the reformed T-800, says the line that you were referring to, Dana, earlier, which is, I won't be back.
2: <laughs> Meaning that he if he sacrifices himself this time that's going to be it. Yeah. But he's not the only one. We also have we've barely talked about her because, I mean, to me, this is she's one of the most misused in the whole movie. But Mackenzie Davis's character, Grace, also gets this moment of self-sacrifice at the end. I just feel like she at, at once is presented as this indomitable fighter and given basically nothing to do and always needs to rely on somebody else. I mean, I don't. Mm, I, <laughs> she
0: defeats the Rev-9 on her own in the first scene that she appears but i mean it's true that after she gets Danny out of the factory and they're off on the highway and stuff she eventually like the 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 thing with her is that she's extremely Uh, Badass, like an extremely good, good fighter and driver and fire of weapons and so on. But she essentially runs out of steam because she uses so much adrenaline to um, fight off Terminators, and so that's when Sarah Connor shows up. I thought she was basically the best part of this movie, and I got a little bit of that feeling that a lot of people had while watching Wonder Woman—not to to the same extent—of like, oh, it's it's. I have never seen a woman have these particular superpowers before um, and be so impressive in this particular way. And, you know, I think it handles that pretty well. Like, she's comes down from space naked in the first scene, but the movie doesn't really leer at her at all. And then she just starts, like, beating up cops quite convincingly. Um So I thought she was one of the better parts of this movie.
2: Sam, break the tie here. Do you think Mackenzie Davis is doing anything interesting? Or do you feel like she's just being dangled as kind of proof of feminism? That's how it seemed to me.
1: I mean, I think I I like the performance. I mean, it helps, uh, at first, also that she is, I I believe, if I'm reading this correctly, nine feet tall. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so I I mean, I like her kind of mean in this. She is... um, you know, a resistance fighter from the future. So she has that very kind of like military bearing. Um, She's a a great line that, uh, well, I think it's great, uh, that uh, Forrest, you reminded me of, or when she is, uh, Sarah Connor has been getting these texts and can't figure out where they come from. And then Mackenzie Davis says, well, give me your phone. And then just kind of like plugs herself like into the phone and to trace the origin of the text. And Sarah Connor says, what are you doing? And Mackenzie Davis's answer is future shit. I
2: like that line too. Um, That's
1: great. (laughs) Future shit is fine. And I think that's kind of- like that's the register that she's in here, just very kind of like kick-ass and and no nonsense. Um, so I, I enjoy that. I don't I mean, I don't think there's like a much of a character to play here. Um, but I just enjoy the like the physicality of what she's doing. Yeah,
2: I mean I'm not at all faulting her performance. It's, she's she's really arresting in that role. The whole idea of making this triad of super strong women who nonetheless have to go get a, a Terminator guy to help them solve their problems. I don't know. I just I was not at all convinced by the the go girl aspect of T6. I mean T6. he's just
0: one member of the team, right? I think he he looks somewhat outmoded by the Mackenzie Davis character. I mean, I just like if, if, if three women and and one male robot is like not enough, then what is it? You just need the one that where there's no male robot? Because I mean, she she is effectively in the same role that Arnold Schwarzenegger is in Terminator 2, and it's not especially original, but I don't think it's especially condescending either.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's condescending. I just don't think it really brings that much that's new to the table. And, and again, yeah. having a little bit of knowledge of who these various characters are would give it a lot more punch that she gives herself up at the end, right? I mean, the moment that she tells Donnie's character to essentially pull her heart out, right, to pull out the the part of her that makes her work... Um, should be more moving and more sacrificial feeling than it is. But it doesn't feel like the molten thumb going down <laughs> in the lava in T2 because they're both kind of generic characters who, who's, whose relationship with each other, have they ever had a one-on-one conversation, basically, no, that well, wasn't come with me if you want to live? Y-
0: well, uh, it depends how narrowly you interpret come with me if you want to live, I suppose. Um, I mean, what we learn about them is that uh, Mackenzie Davis's character was in the future before she was sent back. She was uh, a member of Danny's army. Right. And so that was their relationship. And I also think that and I wonder if this occurred to you guys at all. I think this movie is sort of winking at queer readings on occasion. And there are some scenes where Mackenzie Davis's character and Danny, uh, Grace and Danny, they... Like are looking into each other's eyes for a long time and they really care about each other and they're sort of crying that she doesn't want her to give herself up and and so on. Um, There's also a scene earlier where Sarah Connor... And uh, Grace are caring for Danny uh, before she's evolved much. And so Danny at that point is kind of the child in this relationship. And uh, Danny busts in on them and they're fighting each other. And they say something like, mommies and daddies sometimes have to have grown up conversations. And I mean, a few people laughed in my theater. I laughed a little bit. It's a little bit, I think, of a wink where it's like, who's the daddy in this situation? Did you, I mean, were you guys thinking about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that occurred to me in the sense that there's a relationship at the moment that Mackenzie Davis's character is giving herself up that only one of them knows about, right? Like, in the future, they are going to have this intense mentor-protege relationship. We don't know if it will have romantic overtones or not, but essentially, uh, one of them will be the revolutionary leader that, you know, dispatches the other one on this time travel errand. So, that scene has enormous meaning to the Mackenzie Davis character, and is only dawning on for the first time to Danny that it's going to have tremendous meaning in the future. So there is something, you know, potentially romantic about that, that again, I don't think the movie really does much adequate exploration of, but it's cool to think about how it could have explored it better.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's like a whole history of queer readings that way, right? Where it's usually there isn't much for you to work on, but there's just enough. I think this movie, I mean granted we can expect more than that in 2019. I mean arguably we always should have expected more, but it's 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 in that tradition, I think.
2: So we've established that the Mackenzie Davis character Grace is going to sacrifice herself, but what about the last we see of Carl, the the former T-800? Do you want to take us through his sad demise, Sam?
1: It's very sad. Um, Yeah, so Mackenzie Davis has given up her heart, her power source, um, which she's decided is the only thing that can destroy the Rev-9. If you just jam it into his head, it'll overload him and it'll blow up. Um, So all Danny has to do is get this little uh, doohickey, which basically looks kind of like a glow-in-the-dark spark plug, um, and cram it into the Rev-9. So she goes over to do it. um, And, of course, she drops it. Um, and then the Rev-9 is, is you know, at this point, has been pretty beat up, but still has enough strength to strangle her. So it's actually like wrapping his hands around her neck. Um, Carl has at this point been kind of knocked out or whatever the robot equivalent of that is. So Sarah um, starts yelling at him to wake up, which is always an effective thing to yell at a robot. Um, but he does, you know, they manage to jam this, you know, glowy spark plug thing into him. And then, you know, the Rev-9 kind of starts, you know, going up in, in flames or light. Um, the two of them just kind of uh, tumble down into the bottom of this, I don't know, sort of like a big well or reservoir or something inside the dam. The last sight you see of them in the movie is are uh, they're kind of uh, metallic skeletons like lying at the bottom of this well, let me get a shot of, you know, just Arnold's metal skull with the sort of iconic uh,
0: glowing like red eye in it. Right. And they show it from his perspective, which is, I think, I mean, this movie often it knows it has all these callbacks and these sort of like stations of the Terminator cross to go through. And it's good at, at like withholding a number of them until the moment of maximum emotional impact. And so it's right before this final climactic sequence that it Finally, brings back the um, the full Terminator two score with the the melody going over it instead of just the you know and um, and it's at this moment right when the T eight hundred is dying where they cut to his point of view and you see you know that classic kind of Terminator vision as it powers down
2: right and we've always seen his his red eye go right. out at those last moments but not ever necessarily seen it what it looks like to him. You might think that this is the end of the line for the franchise as well as the end of the line for, for Carl when that light goes out for the last time. But there's a code attacked onto the movie that suggests that there may still be angles of this story to explore. Do you want to describe that for us?
0: Yeah. I mean, so this movie ends with uh, just another callback. So if you remember in Terminator 2, it, it sort of, I think, opens and closes, if I remember correctly, with Sarah Connor, you know, up against a chain link fence with this... Um, nightmare vision that she always has of uh how the you know robot apocalypse is going to come via this like nuclear holocaust i believe it is um and so here we get danny instead up against a chain link fence and she is um watching the young version of grace so grace before she has uh grown up and become augmented and a super soldier and so on and danny is seeing that grace is okay and then uh she and sarah connor uh start to walk off or maybe she walks off and sees sarah connor and sarah connor you know tosses danny the car keys which i think is a sort of passing of the torch where it's like okay danny you're the sarah connor of this series now you're the sort of badass woman commander of the resistance who will be guarding against um all the Terminators who will presumably continue. Re-
2: right. Like Sarah, back. Sarah and John Connor have become one basically, right. That purpose has been fused into one right. person.
0: Yes. And so now that Legion doesn't come along, perhaps some other rebranding of the inevitable robot apocalypse will start sending back uh, robots.
1: Yeah. One of, one of the lines in this movie that really like struck me is when they're, when they first meet Carl and he reveals that he has this big stockpile of, of guns in his uh, house. He, he says, well, like, okay, well, you know, I figured, like, some, some other, Skynet, he knew Skynet wasn't going to happen, but probably some other, you know, robot uh, threat would happen, and even if that didn't, he said, he calculates that there's a 74% chance that humanity would, like, wipe themselves out anyway, um, which kind of um, <laughs> is a depressing thing to say in a movie that is ostensibly about uh, averting the apocalypse. Um, like, it's all just a kind of temporary thing, and in a couple of years from now, it'll be just some other, you know, movie <laughs>
0: That is also the moment where uh, when he's explaining uh, in the scene, you're describing why he says so many guns and he's talking about the uh, inevitable doom that's coming and how he needs to prepare and so on. And then he goes, also, it's Texas. (laughs) Pretty good lines. We're laughing a lot thinking back at this movie. I'm having a great time remembering the the good times I had watching Terminator Dark Fate.
2: It is Carl who gets all the good lines, honestly. And that's not quite fair to Sarah.
0: There's a lot of callbacks. I mean, Sarah gets a bunch of the callbacks, too, and stuff.
2: So one last question before we wrap this one. Will there and should there be another Terminator? Or do you feel like this franchise has come to its natural end?
0: Will there is, I think, an answer that's entirely dependent on the box office that this movie gets. I suspect uh, it will probably get enough box office to justify some sort of sequel. They'll just try to figure out how big the budget should be based on how much box office this movie does. Should there be another one? I mean, like, you could make a more interesting movie within this universe. But as is, these movies seem to just be retreading themselves. I don't think there's any reason for Tim Miller to do... uh, T7 that's just the same as T1 and 2 again.
2: Sam, would you be happy to see another? or are you are you done terminating? I think I am
1: done terminating. Um, this is for me, I mean, I think you know probably the series should have ended after T2, but uh, that is not the world that we live in. Um, and this at least is kind of the first sequel to the movie that it sort of feels like it belongs and it you know it's, it's a, a better ending at least than any of the ones that came in between. I feel like this, both this movie and um, Alita: Battle Angel, which came out earlier this year, James Cameron was also sort of like half involved with while he's shooting his, you know, five or seven Avatar movies. Um, are both kind of serving to like remind us of like what a great James Cameron movie is like, but by not being as good as one. Um, so this is sort of in the same vein. It is not remotely as good as as the first Terminator or T two. Um, but it's sort of close enough to be vaguely satisfying. They're certainly not going to make a better movie in the series at this point. So let's just quit while we're ahead. Yeah,
2: I, I'm, I'm with you there. But I'm actually impressed that you guys have enough affection and respect for this franchise that you were managing to dig into the dross of this movie and find things to value.
0: I hope that in the future, all T-800 movies just involve T-800s. Uh, talking about the virtues of drapes and how to purchase and install the proper drapes that is that a, that's a say. sequel
2: I would stand for one that takes place in between somehow and that shows how Carl started uh, yes, to fall in yes. love with window coverings. Carl and
0: Alicia that's the and matteo
2: <laughs> just i want I just want to see him doing window treatments for the the citizens of Laredo,
1: like extreme makeover t eight hundred edition
2: <laughs> <Yes>. very extreme. <laughs> All right, well, if we are punished with yet another uh, Terminator sequel, I hope that you guys will come in and spoil it with me because I'm really not going to know what's going on at that point. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to this Slate Spoiler Special. You can subscribe to this podcast in the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our audio engineer today was Merritt Jacob. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Forrest Wickman and Samuel Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks, and we'll spoil another movie at you soon.
0: Hey, Drew Scott here, and
1: I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto.